We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing dropping plans for an advanced wafer fab in the Long Tan section of the Shinzu Science Park. The Labour Ministry denying any immediate plans to open up the island's hospitality sector to migrant workers. Controversy surrounding the Taichung MRT Blue Line amid claims a new route is solely aimed at benefiting the interests of one particular family. And a couple opting to have their wedding photos taken at a temporary trash storage site to draw attention to garbage issues. But we'll begin with some rather messy election news, that being the failure so far at least of the KMT and the Taiwan People's Party to reach any consensus on plans for a joint opposition ticket for January's presidential election. KMT and TPP campaign officials held talks this past weekend and at exploring a possible electoral pact between the two parties. However, the bickering began as soon as that meeting had wrapped up, with both parties criticising each other for the failure to finalise the plans. The TPP during the meeting pushed for a poll to see whether voters back either the KMT KMT's Ho Yo E or its presidential candidate Ke Wen Jiu to represent the two parties, while the KMT proposed an open primary to select the candidate. The TPP though rejected that proposal, saying an open primary could lead to sampling bias and arguing that if voter turnout is low, there could be a lack of representation at the polling stations. Now on Tuesday, the TPP outlined proposals for two methods of conducting polls to determine whether Ke or Ho is the stronger candidate to run against Vice President Lai Ching Jiu in January's ballot. Now, according to that proposal, five polling organisations will be hired to conduct separate polls with 3,000 samples each, 50% landline, 50% mobile phone or all mobile phone. And the TPP said in order to avoid the polls being rigged, the polling organisations would only be announced at a later time and the survey timeframe not made public. The TPP this week also called for Terry Gore to be included in those polls and says... Two methods of polling could be used. I won't go into them now because they're a bit in depth. Needless to say, the KMT was a bit perturbed by all this. And Ho Yoi's campaign executive officer, Jing Pu Tsong, said, well, he doesn't really like the TPP proposals. And he also accused Kerwinger's party of domineering by expecting the KMT to go along with its proposals. Meanwhile, the latest poll conducted by the Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation shows that apparently 52.3% of respondents actually support an election alliance between the KMT and the TPP despite the fact that they can't even reach beginning to reach consensus on it, Brian. Yeah, so after months of speculation, we're finally getting down to when the two parties have to agree to cooperate or not to cooperate. And now we see this dispute breaking out between them. It's not entirely surprising. There are many reasons why they would not cooperate. For example, who is the number two to the number one if you do have one party backing out its own candidate? And for the KMT, which is, of course, the older party and has been around in Taiwanese politics for quite some time, it'd be very hard to uh, take second fiddle to Ke Wenzhou. And both parties then are pushing for their respective uh, method of deciding a candidate as they think will favor them the best. But then perhaps to begin with, actually, the parties were not entirely serious about it. They wanted a grandstand to make a show of unity on the Pan Blue camp to come off as the better party, the more willing to cooperate and work with the other party. But maybe they didn't really want it. And so now they're looking for ways to make the other party look bad, uh, come out of it looking as though they were the one that was more open to cooperating. And in that sense, this becomes then a foreign political attack between the TPP and the KMT. 
And then Brian, of course, there's the Terry Gore scenario thrown in just to confuse things even more. Exactly. And I also do enjoy that as right before uh, this meeting was about to take place where they talked about all this, Terry Gore says, oh, well, I could possibly still cooperate with Ko and Joe. But he didn't mention Ho Yoi. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's, uh, I think, more unlikely. But uh, either way, Terry Gore is still floating around and wants to throw a wrench into things as well. So, Donovan, of course, the Public Opinion Foundation poll shows that a majority of people do want or do would like to see an alliance between the KMT and the TPP. But, of course, neither party can actually get it together to actually form said alliance. Yeah, I, you know, I, I tend to take TPOF polls with a little bit of a grain of salt. But, but yes, there is tremendous pressure. And, and this is why the KMT and the D, uh, TPP had their meeting, is that there's tremendous grassroots pressure to push the two candidates to, to form a unity ticket because they think there's a very good chance that it could beat lie. And interestingly, in several polls, not all, but several polls have shown that on a unity ticket, the percentage of people who would still vote for the unity ticket is only slightly lower than the percentage of people who would vote for the candidates separately. So, but I do suspect that if they actually did form a unity ticket, they would have to accept a lot of each other's policy stances. And that, of course, gets into issues like the 1992 consensus. And I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of Ko's base, which is heavily tilted toward younger voters, if the 1992 consensus were included in the common policy platform, I, I really don't see them going for that. Now, to be honest, I, I, I think a lot of this is all kind of kabuki theater. Um, they had to respond to the grassroots pressure, so they, they had to show, as Brian noted, that they had made the effort. And then, and this has already happened, then they could turn around and blame the other side for being the uncooperative, <laughs> intransigent one. And that's exactly what has played out. Uh, the, the two offers that they put forward uh, for determining the candidate were clearly designed to benefit themselves, and they probably knew that the other side wasn't going to accept it. I think they, they thought it would be worth a try because if they could knock out the, the, the other one and push them into a second position, that would, of course, benefit them a lot. Um, but, you know, it, it was a long shot. I mean, there was no way they're going to do it. Um, and, for example, I don't think that Cook can, ex uh, because he has to establish a specific, like a new brand image for the TPP and try and use his position as presidential candidate to try and boost the vote for the party list and the legislature because that's where government subsidies come from. And to be able to compete with the two major parties, he's got to be able to get those subsidies from the party list. If he, sub if he subsumes himself as a vice pres presidential candidate, he's not going to be able to effectively do that. And you're going to run into a situation like in 2004, where the PFP ran as the presidential candidate, vice presidential candidate, I'm sorry, and their party has since gone into irrelevance. Uh, as I described it in a column the other day, if the T, if, you know, if Ku jumps uh, in as the vice presidential candidate, it will, it'll basically look like, you know, the KMT's in the driver's seat and the TPP is the dog, family dog's, you know, the, you know, the head sticking out the window of the car and the tongue waving in the breeze, you know. Um, so to keep their, their brand identity, they really need to stay separate. 
And Brian, of course, also Kerwin Joe this week did hint that maybe the KMT should cease pushing for a presidential electoral pact and instead cooperate in the legislative elections. Yeah, so this is interesting too, because there are grassroots pressures on both directions, you could say. Uh, one is to push them to cooperate, but the other is that if you are a KMT legislative candidate or a TPP legislative candidate, on some level, you might not want cooperation if what happens is you're talking about then cooperation at the legislative level. And does that mean then one person has to withdraw from an area when you've been building up a campaign for a while? And so in the meeting, the results that came out of it, both parties did agree to cooperate, quote-unquote, to maximize their gains in the legislature. But will that actually occur? That's also hard to imagine. And as we talk about the complicated process of holding a poll in some form, decide who the presidential candidate would be, then thinking about that as applied to all the different legislative candidates, that'd be quite difficult. The TPP is running legislature candidates in, in like more than 50 uh, districts, if I recall correctly. Because, of course, Brian, the KMT did propose an open primary to select the candidate, which is kind of ironic, seeing they never had no primary to pick their presidential candidate in the first place. And that was also ironic, because uh, when Eric Chu was asked about it, for example, he said that, well, I mean, that was to decide the presidential candidates, very different from discussing inter party cooperation. And so it looks like the rules often change based on uh, what is convenient at the moment. And Donovan, do you see inter-party cooperation actually coming to the forefront and being the thing that happens? Or do you think it's all going to end in tears and or simply disappear? Well, they actually are cooperating in a few uh, electoral districts already. Um, so there is a small amount of cooperation. For example, in the Taichung 1 district, uh, the KMT is not running a candidate, and they're stepping aside for Tsai from uh, the TPP. And there's a few other districts where the TPP has held back uh, candidates as well. So there is some cooperation, but it's a relatively uh, low level of cooperation. Um, one comment I can add on the proposals to choose the presidential candidate, if uh, either Kuz, uh support in the poll suddenly starts dropping off and or Hoyui starts to rocket in the polls, you might see that the KMT all of a sudden go, okay, we'll go, we'll go for the uh, polling option, which of course would then put Ke in quite a quandary. And that'd be really ironic and uh, outcome of this, but this has been a pretty ironic process throughout, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Brian, if you had to make a wager, obviously you can't make a wager, it is illegal in Taiwan, but were you elsewhere where you could make a wager, would you put a wager on the Ker-ho ticket, ho Ker ticket actually coming to fruition? I think probably not, because um, as was mentioned, there is the KMT not wanting to be second place, because it is a party with history. But then on the flip side, that actually uh, finds a kind of corresponding opposite in the fact that the TPP, as, as Donovan mentioned, does have to distinguish itself from the KMT. Uh, it is actually facing a problem that third parties in Taiwan historically have faced. I mean, the MPP, for example, and the DPP uh, is going to just be a little green party. It's a little bit different, but not that different. And so this is the moment, I think, when the TPP facing its uh, little blue problem. Is it that different from the KMT? But then Ko, of course, does have to seem as though he's at least willing to get to the table and negotiate. Uh, both parties would look bad if that did not happen. But uh, we see this now, this outcome. And, of course, Donovan, there are some that argue, basically, if the TPP and the KMT and Terry Gore do not get their acts together and unite the DPP, rather, will simply just win the election. Uh, well, yeah, um, uh, you know, as Coenja put it, uh, he'll, he'll win it lying down. I mean, that l- looks like the most likely scenario if they all stay, if the three opposition candidates stay separate. Although there are some polls which do show 
uh, a fairly narrow gap between ke and lai, but they're mostly outlying poles. There is a little bit more leeway for Kuenza and uh, Terry Guo to come together in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, because Go doesn't come with the baggage of the KMT. He's not, you know, he, he's not representing a party. The only problem is that you still get down to the problem of who's going to play second fiddle on the ticket. And Terry Guo is an outsized personality, how shall I put it? Um, <laughs> I, I don't see that this former CEO subsuming his ego to the point where he'll take second fiddle. But he might take some kind of face-saving, um, you know, some kind of face-saving deal where he gets major influence or he gets control over the economic portfolio or he's appointed premier or, you know, and then he can say that the important thing is, is that his ideas have been incorporated into the, the, the incoming government. I, I could see him possibly accepting something along those lines. And then he doesn't come in as a vice presidential candidate. He has offered uh, the TPP use of, they've got over 400 um, signature drive um, stations around the country. It's probably far more than the TPP could use, but he's offered those as uh, essentially campaign offices for TPP's use if they cooperate. And, of course, the self-made billionaire has offered to help fund the TPP, which is a major problem for, for them, compared to the KMT and the, D, and the DPP. So there are some things that Terry, Terry, Terry Goh can offer uh, that would be valuable for, for, to Ke and the TPP. On the other hand, uh, Terry Goh has some, let's call them unusual policy proposals, like refusing to buy arms from the United States, um, he plans to defend Taiwan with a uh, robot army of 80,000 robots. He hasn't really specified what type of robots these are. Um, and he's got some, I would say, sovereignty compromising um, ideas on how to deal with China. And Brian, of course, when all this doesn't come out and doesn't work, who will be to blame for the DPP winning the presidential election? Terry Gore, Hoyoe, or Ko and Jur? I think a combination of all those threes. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are quite a number of outsized personalities here, and I think that is uh, one of the challenges, I guess, of Taiwanese politics. Uh, I also just find it quite uh, amusing to imagine uh, any presidential alignment in which these two people are in the same administration. I mean, for example, imagine being Ho and Ko is your vice, and suddenly he might be attacking you one day because he has a tendency to do that. That might not work out. And I would also think about that, too, as another obstacle to cooperation. Do you really want this person as your vice for the next four years? And Brian, if they do lose, if they do not form an alliance, and, of course, the DPP stroll to victory like a watermelon could at the moment, to quote <laughs> someone else who said that some years ago, I mean, do you think Kerr, Ho or Guo will actually admit that they made the mistake? Probably not, because I think uh, some of these characters will want to be in the running for future presidential races. And so particularly, I think, Ko and Go, uh, they would want to still be in the running. And so they would never admit blame, blame the KMT, probably, and try to keep viable for the next set of elections. Moving on now, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing on Tuesday of this week announced that it scrapped plans to build an advanced wafer fab at the Longtan section of the Shinzu Science Park. The statement came after residents of Taoyuan's Longtan district have been voicing their opposition to the plans due to 
concerns over land expropriations. Residents argued that the planned project aimed to expropriate about 88% of the land it would need from private owners, affecting some 3,000 residents in more than 160 households. Now, TSMC said it will continue to seek a suitable site for the fab, while Economics Minister Wang Meihua said the government will provide all necessary assistance to TSMC for its expansion and continue to help it find a land for the future investments. Now, the move has resulted in local elected officials in Jai, Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong all scrambling to host the planned cutting-edge wafer fab. And it's also raised questions, Brian, about how much room there is available in Taiwan to expand science and tech parks. Yeah, so this is an interesting challenge because uh, science and tech parks are notoriously hungry for electricity and water. And yet, oftentimes, politicians wanting something to uh, say as an accomplishment to their name will be pushing for the construction of these. And sometimes that runs up against local residents' wishes. This is a case in which there were local residents that were actually having backlash against TSMC. And it's not also the first time this has happened. Uh, more often, though, it's regarding energy facilities that are to be used by TSMC because of the potential for pollution or potential dangers of having them in an area. Uh, but more commonly, the trend has been to call for TSMC entering an area. And so as there's been more discussion of TSMC's role in the world and its importance for Taiwan, politicians are now vowing to bring TSMC to their constituencies to create all these high-tech jobs. And so this is actually kind of a reversal of the trend, and there are local residents pushing back against it. But I think there'll be no shortage of places that want to have TSMC there and no shortage of politicians that want that as a political credit. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that they backed away from the Longtan uh, site, but I can see why. They're a, they're very a very self-conscious company when it comes to publicity, and I think they were looking at this where you know the Dapu uh, protests in the early 2010s, where residents were uh, protesting uh, expropriation of land in Miaoli. And those turned violent, those protests. And I think that TSMC was looking at this, and they didn't want the long-term hassle and the, pub, you know, the negative publicity of something like that going on. Now, as for the, uh, an upcoming site, there are possible sites where, there, where there's plenty of space. The problem is getting workers to commute there. Um, for example, in the Zhanghua area, which is right down south uh, in Zhanghua County, around Arlen, that, that area, um, there's plenty of space. Um, and that's, uh, that's the Central Taiwan uh, Science Park extend, extension area there. The problem is, is nobody wants to live there. Um, now, the other problem is, I, I suspect that Kaohsiung and Pingdong will have to be ruled out um, as options because they don't get their water from reservoirs. They get, the, they get that from the Galping River, which could be much more unstable. Now, if you take a look at the water usage, for example, in the uh, TSMC 2 nanometer plant that was just approved to be constructed in August here in Taichung, that, the d- negotiations on that were held up for quite a while because this plant would use uh, 7% of Taichung's entire water supply daily and 24% of its of electrical needs, which is massive. Um, so, and Taichung can't take another one with that scale of water and power usage. So they had to take a long time for Thai power and Thai water to figure out how they're going to be able to meet those needs. So I'd say Kaohsiung and Pingdong are out. 
GIE is a bit of a problem because I don't know how many engineers want to live there. So if I had to bet, it would be Tainan because they are serviced by a reservoir and they're building a new water desalination plant that was just announced. Yeah, that's right. Though there were pushback in uh, Tainan as well against TSMC facilities. So I think uh, it's interesting to see this dynamic. Um, but that raises the, the interesting problem here, which is that it's very easy to promise to bring TSMC to a place. But what does it actually mean for local residents? And so I think particularly TSMC then in that light is quite conscious of the potential for blowback. And for example, as it has taken a more uh, prominent place in public discourse, it does not want to become another Thai power, something that is an institution uh, that Taiwan really has going for it in terms of maintaining infrastructure, let's say, but then which is quite unpopular with many people. And there's a lot of anger against, particularly regarding when the government is perceived as bending back uh, in favor of its will. And so I think that's what TSMC is conscious of. Of course, Brian, this issue was politicized during the last local elections. Yeah, that's right. And so there will be politicization of this going forward as well, uh, blaming that this did not go through, saying the government failed, the central government failed, uh, but also local residents saying that they want it uh, you know, for themselves, uh, politicians making these promises, which then are actually much more complicated because it involves a lot of infrastructure. Uh, and so I can't imagine this now becoming a political football issue and that there was actually a, such discussion of this, that it was a front page New York or reflects that this is increasingly something talked about in terms of local politics. Yeah, I mean... Simon Zhang, the um, Taoyuan mayor, of course, got a lot of pushback on this um, because he had promised, you know, to bring in exactly this kind of investment into Taoyuan. Um, so he, and he's quite indignant that he's received this criticism, um, saying that this is TSMC's decision, not his. Um, so yeah, it's going to remain a political football. They also have another major problem, um, and that is talent. They've got a massive talent shortage all across the uh, semiconductor supply chain. And something that a lot of people forget about the semiconductor supply chain is that it runs into the hundreds of companies. You know, everything from getting the, the basic chemicals and raw materials to processing those, you know, and then getting them to a state where TSMC can actually use them. And then, you know, they do the, you know, they have to get the lithography machines, um, you know, and, and then, you know, there's all the design and that goes into it and then it goes all the way to packaging and processing. And then, you know, and then it goes on to be put into whatever device it's meant for. So, I mean, all of these things added up is far more than just the fab. So, but if you get the fab, that means that there's more likely that you'll attract other companies from that supply chain. So you're seeing this play out in Arizona, where TSMC is building their plants there, their fabs, I should say. You know, they're getting some of their suppliers to move out there as well. So now Taiwan is, is small enough that you may not see this effect quite so strongly, meaning that um, ASE, the, you know, the, the, the packaging uh, company, can remain in Kaohsiung even if you know, they're, they're dealing with chips made in Shinju. But, you know, overall, you know, when you get one of these, one of these fabs here in Taiwan, it also means that you're going to keep a lot more of that supply chain. So the 5,900 or so, if I recall correctly, uh, employees that this fab is, would create, or at least they estimate would create, will, will also send a ripple effect of needing more employees throughout this entire supply chain, both internationally and locally. So, you know, if, if Taiwan can keep these fabs here, and crucially, 
they can get uh, enough um, technical staff to work in them, and they're working now, I noticed, with India to get uh, more uh, more technical staff. Um, uh, you know, then it means that it keeps more jobs, does help boost the, the economy locally. And so it, it is a big deal if Taiwan can keep these fabs. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Labour Minister Xu Min Chuan this week has been busy denying reports that the government is seeking to open the island's hotel industry to overseas migrant workers. Now, according to Xu, the government is currently, well, it has no timetable for such a move and her ministry's top priority remains the welfare of Taiwanese workers. The statement came after it was reported that the cabinet is planning to approve a plan to allow the hiring of migrant workers in the hotel sector, possibly beginning next year, in order to address the ongoing labour shortage there. Now, the Taiwan Confederation of Trade Unions has slammed that reported move, saying the government should instead focus on improving wages in the domestic hotel industry rather than downgrading Taiwan's labour environment by opening the sector to foreign workers. However, the Labour Ministry says any plan to expand the migrant worker force here in Taiwan in the hotel sector must go through the Workforce Development Agency's Policy Consultation Committee and will be properly reviewed prior to any changes in current policy. Now, Transport Minister Wang Guo Tsai late last week told reporters that the government has formulated initial plans to open up the hospitality sector to migrant workers but major details of said plan are still needed to be worked out. Government data shows, if you're interested, that the hotel industry is currently facing a shortage of more than 1,000 workers. So, of course, we talked about this before, Brian, several times on the show, but now it's come to a head because, of course, also this week the government admitted that, well, Chinese tourists won't be coming back this year but they could be coming back next year, which means, of course, there'll be more call for hotels. Yeah, that's right. And we're at a time in which we've seen international travel resume. Uh, in particular, many people from regional countries, Southeast Asia, East Asia, are traveling to Taiwan for vacation. And so there is a need now for more workers in the hospitality industry. And interestingly enough, this is something that the hospitality industry itself or organizations in that have called for uh, because there are these labor shortages. But then I think particularly now is an election year, and sometimes this will uh, affect voters in some way, where they view potentially the government as then doing all these benefits for migrant workers and allowing them in and taking the jobs of your average voting Taiwanese person. And so I think this is why it's this idea has been kind of pulled back now. Uh, if it does go through, it might be after the election. I mean, there has been talk of this for some time. Uh, this takes at the same time as the, the quotas for a number of industries that use migrant workers in, for example, agriculture, manufacturing, and construction have been increased because there has been a demand for that. And particularly for, for example, small farms, uh, it's been made easier to hire migrant workers because that's another demand. Uh, and in particular, there's a reliance sometimes on a floating population of undocumented workers in some places. And so there's been a need for an overall kind of reform. And so it's a time in which there's a discussion of, for example, allowing migrant workers in from India, which would be a new country for blue-collar migrant workers in Taiwan. And so this now is pulled back as a political backlash, but it would not be surprised me if it's discussed again in the future. But of course, there are hotels popping up in Taipei City all the time because you walk down to Taipei one month and you go about the next month and there's a new hotel being built. Yeah, that's right. And so we do see that. Um, and perhaps building that hotel in the construction industry are migrant workers. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the critics that got the government to push, to, that pushed back against the government and got them to back down, they said that, you know, the, the industry needs to concentrate on hiring more elderly people and, you know, this sort of thing. And they, there may be a little bit of truth to that, but the fact of the matter is, I, I just don't think that they're going to find Taiwanese willing to fill jobs like dishwasher and and maids. I think that the supply of Taiwanese with a shrinking population and a shrinking workforce that are going to want to take those jobs um, is minusculely small. So I think in the end, they're going to have to approve uh, allowing people from outside Taiwan to come in and fill those positions. But Brian, would that drive the wages down in the sector? Meaning, obviously, local less local people would want to work in the hospitality sector because the wages are basically either stagnant or have declined. It is a good question. Uh, I think what is quite interesting is, for example, migrant workers in Taiwan historically work the 3D professions, uh, dangerous, demeaning, and uh, dirty. And this is, in fact, a category that the government has for work. Uh, but then, for example, hospitality industry, certainly it's not a level of danger as in a factory or a fishing vessel that's at sea. Uh, and so then that does open, I think, the possibility, or at least in public discourse, for migrant work in other sectors. And I think particularly in the hospitality industry, it'd become much more visible seeing migrant workers in these industries in everyday life uh, behind a counter, for example, at a hotel. And I think then that also will then touch on these kind of uh, uh, concerns from some sectors of the Taiwanese public, particularly very protectionistic or anti-immigrant, uh, about just, oh, wow, all these people coming in and taking our jobs, despite the fact that legally migrant workers cannot stay more than 14 years unless uh, they qualify for being classified as intermediate skilled manpower, which is quite difficult. But uh, I think that's, that's the concern of the government here. And of course, Brian, if migrant workers do work in hotels here, could you even call your waiter or bar steward in a hotel a migrant worker? Uh, that's the ironic thing, I think. It's, and so, uh, particularly now, then, I think the thing is that this would be something significant because then you do see migrant workers in everyday life, not just in your home taking care of your elderly uh, grandfather or grandmother or just on the streets because they normally work in the factories and so forth. It puts migrant workers very directly in, in everyday life. And actually, it's quite interesting because you do see this in other countries in the region too. For example, Japan, you see much more uh, people from Southeast Asia in convenience stores working there. And that's a very visible sign of shifting uh, trends in society demographically. And so I think that would occur with Taiwan. And the government uh, stakeholders, let's say, would perhaps be uh, cognizant that the public might react badly against this. My suspicion is that when they, not if, but when they eventually open this up to um, foreign workers for the hospitality industry, they're, they're gonna, their first steps will be cautious. It'll be relatively small numbers, and they will, be limited not, they will be limited to the kind of jobs that Taiwanese just simply won't take. You know, that's again, that's the dishwashers, the maids. They won't be putting them in, you know, at the front desk, and probably the government would limit them from even taking those positions. So to your earlier question about would it lower wages, I don't think so, because, you know, nobody wants the job. No Taiwanese workers want to be a dishwasher. So they're not really competing with a, a big labor market of Taiwanese pursuing a career in dishwashing. Um, However, the, you know, the hospitality roles, which are more front desk, more public, there are Taiwanese who do want to take those positions because they can move up the ladder. You know, there is some mobility in those positions, and they're seen as at least somewhat more glamorous. Um, 
So yeah, I suspect that they that you know when they bring in foreigners, they will put them in the kitchens. You know, they'll be cleaning rooms. They'll be doing that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. And so discussion has primarily been in terms of cleaning uh, and, for example, uh, similar work along those lines. And so those are the jobs that would be more likely for migrant workers to take up in line with how oftentimes migrant workers are already employed in Taiwan. Uh, but I think just particularly the notion of opening up to new industries. I mean, thinking about it, it's only a few decades that Taiwan has opened up uh, blue-collar migrant work in this way. And so I think particularly when there are shifts, it can be quite sensitive in that sense. And moving to some localised news now from the Taichung area where Donovan is now currently seated in his living room. Well, Premier Chen Jianren this week insisted that the central government fully supports construction of the Taichung MRT Blue Line. The statement came after Vice President and DPP presidential candidate Lai Ching-de this past weekend accused the city government of rerouting the planned line to benefit the business interests of a rather well-known and somewhat controversial Taichung political family. That family, of course, are the Yens, and I won't get into them now, but the D- DPP has accused the current Taichung city government of choosing to locate some new stations close to property owned by the Yen family, effectively increasing the property prices there. So, of course, issues surrounding the Taichung MRT Blue Line are not new, Donovan, of course, but what's going on here right now? Yeah, there's been definitely a lot of uh, back and forth between uh, Pan Blues and Pan Greens on this one. Um, so there, there were changes, by the way, made. Uh, th- these plans for the blue line go back 33 years, um, and it still hasn't broken ground. There were changes to the route made uh, under former Mayor Lin Jialong as well. Now, the main argument, as you noted, is that the city government is suspected of rerouting this to help the Yen family, which head up the Taichung Black faction, the patronage faction here locally. And of course, they're powerful in KMT circles or Pan Blue circles. And the Yen family is has had some legal troubles about occupying state land, and somehow the government looked the other way. And there have been there's long been rumors and speculation that, for example, when there's a, a land auction held, if a representative of the black faction or the Yen family walks into the room nobody's going to compete with them on the bid. So they get, you know, they win the bid almost by default. So there's a lot of suspicion. And, of course, the patriarch of the family, Yen Xingbiao, has served up jail terms for, among other things, gun crimes, corruption, a whole slew of things. He served multiple jail terms. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of suspicion surrounding this. Now, the city government... Uh, and Mayor Lu Xiaoyan has defended this, saying that the route, by changing the route, you can, this means the amount of land that they have to expropriate is significantly less, which makes the whole process easier and cheaper. However, to now change the plans means that that, that part of the, of the route has to be reassessed, which will cost a small fortune to do so. So the DPP is accusing the KMT uh, that this is wasteful because of those extra costs. And then on the other hand, uh, you know, the KMT is shot back that the changes made to the route under Lin Jialong of the DPP were more expensive than the changes being made under Lu Xiaoyan. And it goes on and on. And there's more, but you, you, you generally get the idea of how this back and forth is going. 
So, Donovan, I mean, do you think you'll have to wait another 30 years, or do you think they'll actually sort this out sharpish? It feels that way. <laughs> um, I mean, these changes definitely... Now, the Cabinet has come back and said that they, wanna, they want experts to assess this, and they're going to look to them. But this is yet another delay to the whole process. Now, Lu Xiaoyan has accused the Thai administration of slow-walking this, which the central government has come back and said, no, we're just doing a proper assessment like we legally have to. And again, it's a back and forth. Um, you know, uh, and it may be that both sides are partly true. I mean, at this point, but it's a little bit hard to say. Um, but it's going to be years before they build, uh, before they, it's going to be at least a few more, like at least another year or two before they begin work on an MRT blue line. And they estimated the, I forget exactly, but, you know, roughly a decade to build. Um, it will snarl traffic uh, because they're going to build it underground. They're going to build it above ground uh, to roughly about where a freeway, the Sunnyatsen freeway is. And then they're going to build it underground from there on out, which means that Taiwan Boulevard is going to be, which is the in the stretch in front of the, you know, Mitsukoshi is the worst traffic in the city. And they're going to rip those roads up for possibly as long as a decade constructing this thing. And then when it's finally built, it actually won't, for your average user, it, it, it won't be much faster than simply taking uh, the, the bus in the express lane. And maybe slower, because you'll have to go all the way down into the station, you know, go th go through the maze there to finally get to the your MRT, and for your average person only going a few stops, that actually might take longer than if you just taken the bus in the express lane. Yeah, and so this, I think, reflects one of the long-standing issues of Chinese politics, is that whenever public infrastructure is being built on this scale, uh, there's enormous delays and accusations of corruption. And oftentimes, you have that accusation, then, that multiple stops are being added for no reason to MRT lines to increase property values. But I think what is interesting is that during the previous election cycles in Taichung, there was backlash against the Yen family and what uh, has been framed as this historical dominance over Taichung politics through corruption, gangs, and other related means that are not exactly on the table when it comes to politics. And so the DPP is leaning into such attacks again because this is a, a something that worked last time. And so this is why this has come up again. But then it gets ca caught in another uh, long-standing cycle of Chinese politics, which is the local government blaming the central government and the central government trying to blame the local government. And it's hard to parse out blame sometimes, but when different parties control either side, then this is the kind of cycle of fighting that one sees. And before we go this week, a couple from Nanto have taken an odd approach to the obligatory wedding photo session and opted to get their espousal snaps taken at a temporary trash storage site in the county. Now, according to the bride, they chose to have their wedding photos taken in front of the Garbage Mountain in Pooley Township to raise awareness about waste management problems. The site is one of several locations in Nanto where garbage has been piling up in recent years due to the county lacking either an incinerator and, well, also insufficient landfill space. So, Brian, of course, these pictures came out, hit the media... And obviously, this couple, they're making a good point. They're from Nanto. There's garbage in Nanto. Quite a lot of garbage in Nanto, apparently. We're not talking about Donovan there. And do you think this could start a new a new fad in Taiwan, though? Obviously, people, we had odd things in ramen. We had people changing their name to get free sushi. People taking their obligatory wedding pictures to protest things. 
Yeah, it is quite interesting because the wedding photo is a particularly Taiwanese institution where people take this and it's very fancy and it's almost sometimes uh, there's much expenditure that goes into this and it's a massive industry. Uh, oftentimes, then you have people traveling long distances to take photos in front of some landmark in Europe or elsewhere. Uh, but in this case, it's about a social issue. And honestly, it's not the first time this has happened. For example, with gay marriage, some of the movement leaders uh, would have wedding photos that were specifically trying to draw attention to the issue. That's not so surprising there. But then you also do have Uh, oftentimes, for example, social movement protest leaders, let's say you're a labor activist, you might take a wedding photo at a labor-related event. That's not the first time this happened either. But then when it comes to garbage, that's newer, and it is quite a visual spectacle. And so people do things like that, uh, you know, regarding specific issues or things they're passionate about or uh, that create an image that with the aim of going viral on social media, that might be a new trend because we are in the age of social media now. And traffic. Do you see people protest having their pictures, having their wedding pictures taken in the middle of a busy road to protest traffic woes? That would be uh, interesting for sure. I mean, it might cause some issues there with traffic, even if you're uh, <laughs> trying to demonstrate against traffic. But that's possible. Yeah. Earlier this year, the Nantuck County government uh, stated that there was 240,000 tons of garbage piling up in these temporary garbage mountains. I've reported on this quite a few times now uh, here on ICRT, because this turned into a serious problem in Nanto. Now, it used to be that they would be able to send, they, they could, you know, they, their landfill, combination of landfill and sen- sending the garbage to nearby counties and cities incinerators to burn was enough to handle the issue. The problem is, is that other cities and counties now have pretty much maxed out their own capacity, and then they go through maintenance cycles and are shut down and can't take in anything, any extra. And then you've got the NIMBY problem in that no new incinerators are being built, including in Nanto, which desperately needs one, because nobody wants it in, in their neighborhood. But on the other hand, in Nanto, these garbage mountains stink. And sometimes the smell spreads out over the entire town. Um, And then they're also prone to garbage fires, which is even worse as far as smell and smoke and, you know. So these have become a major, major problem in Nanto. And there, there still doesn't appear to be any, you know, any solution in sight. So hopefully, Brian, these wedding photos will wake people up to the issue. Yeah, I mean, if they do, that'd be a positive development. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And always great to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.